Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. All I would have said throughout my whole life is peace, man. I just want peace. However, I couldn't tolerate peace. It was unfamiliar. The lack of sympathetic fight or flight activation to me was uncomfortable. So I would do one of two things in my relationships. I would either tick around kind of uh, in my body, like agitation. I would clean. I would expend the type A, right? I would do things. I would go through my checklist. I'd clean the house, right? I'd get my energy out that way. If my partner happened to be home or not, I have a cell phone. I might agitate the relationship. I might remember that thing that you didn't do this morning. And why don't you do And now you know what I've created? Always something. Now I'm in a new stress response. So that hippie hammock, while I was proclaiming, all I want is peace, man, leave me alone. When I had it, I was so used to chaos that I, I participated and I created it. So I say that to say, for some of us, the absence of always something, the absence of maybe anger, passion or whatever it is, when that goes away, some of us are feeling that discomfort because that's the pattern we're used to. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hey, Bettys. I have such a treat for you today. I sat down to speak with Dr. Nicole LaPera, otherwise known as the holistic psychologist. She has a huge Instagram following, just shy of 3 million people on that platform. And we are going to be talking all about how we can become self healers. And just before I do that, I just wanted to read a review that came in that I actually shared with my team because it made me so happy. This is from Shana of New York uh, in the United States. And she says, I absolutely love this podcast. I refer to all the women I know. Dr. Stephanie talks about the things that you don't tell people are bothering you. She pulls a truth from you you didn't know existed. And I have to say thank you for making me feel less alone in a world where it's a struggle to know our true self and when and where I'm supposed to fight and care for me. I'm excited to keep learning and get better while being one of Dr. Stephanie's Bettys. Shana, I love this. Thank you so much for noticing. And you are totally a Betty because you can write, girl, like that review brought tears to my eyes. So thank you so much. And uh, if you feel, if you're listening to this and you feel 
called to leave a review, I would love to see it uh, or a five-star rating. That would be great as well on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. And I love reading them and I love sharing them with the audience because the more reviews that we get, the more stars we get, the more people find us and the more Bettys we can amalgamate into this wonderful community. So on to the podcast. So Dr. Nicole LaPera. So she received more traditional training from Cornell University and the New School. And she's really evolved that traditional training into a more holistic one that acknowledges the connection between the mind and the body. And in our conversation today, we talked about a lot of things. And truthfully, I probably could have spoken to her for another couple of hours, but we had run right to the end of our time together. And we spoke about trauma and really about expanding the definition of what trauma means as a child. So we commonly or traditionally might think of uh, sexual abuse or emotional, uh, physical abuse or emotional abuse as trauma, but she really expanded that into uh, a much more robust definition. So parents denying your reality, not being seen or heard, having a parent live vicariously through through you, uh, being told that you shouldn't experience certain emotions and on and on. So she talked about that. We, we moved that into a conversation around the consequences of said trauma. So what happens when our reality is denied? What happens when, you know, you fall off a bike and you're told that it doesn't matter? You know, what are some of the consequences psychologically that can happen from that and how that might impact our relationships, both our romantic relationships and our Interper- any interpersonal relationships with our families, with our friends, with our coworkers. And we talked about codependency, being addicted to drama or recreating, you know, the chaos that you may have experienced as a child into your adult life without, without realizing it. We talked about normal feelings in relationships. So if you are in a relationship, it's normal to feel you know, bored. It's normal to maybe feel attracted or to see someone or notice someone else who is outside of your relationship that's attractive. We talked about those things. And then we moved into a conversation around healing. So we talked about, you know, what are some of the best ways that we can begin to take ownership for the trauma and not to excuse it or okay it, but to begin the process of reparenting. So healing through the nervous system. We talked about healing the body, how we can become more conscious and more aware in our everyday life and not being so autonomic or so automatic. And then we had a conversation around the inner child, around ego, and how we can begin to have empathy and begin to forgive. And of course, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I'm on a quest to understand forgiveness. It's a big... uh, both a personal and professional um, interest of mine. And we finished off talking about boundaries because there's so many of us, myself included, where we say yes when we really want to say no and we don't know how to say no because we are concerned about hurting someone's feelings or we feel that we're obligated to give an excuse or, or what have you. And then there's a resentment that can build up. So she went through some boundary exercises and how we can distinguish between setting a healthy boundary versus running away from your own shit. <laughs> because we can all, you know, boundaries are a really big buzzword now. You can also use it as a boundary. You can use air quotes boundaries to actually not, um, you know, if you're someone who likes to avoid conflict, you can pretend that it's a boundary. So 
Lots and lots and lots of great information in this podcast. I know that this is going to change your life. I certainly felt enlightened by it. And I would encourage you that if you find this useful, to share it with a friend, to share it with someone who you may think is struggling or someone who is just a Betty, just like you, who's on their path towards self-actualization and just becoming more of who they already are. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Nicole LaPera. I am a huge fan of the BioOptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. Welcome to the show. I am so happy to be hosting you today. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie, for having me. Yeah, it's so funny. Um, I feel like my, at least half of my Instagram uh, account is reposting things that you put on your Instagram. (laughs) Anything you post, I'm like, oh my God, that's so good. So I will put it in my stories or I'll send it over to my friends and we'll have like, you know, a meaningful conversation around it. And that's actually part of why I wanted to reach out to you because your work 
I mean, obviously has struck a chord. There's millions of people that follow you, but it is so, it's such important work. And one of the things I love about the way that you frame your scope of work, one of the ways is the way that you talk about uh, trauma. So we all think about trauma, like the big T trauma, the physical abuse, the sexual abuse, the, you know, but we don't, I, I wanted, I wanted to maybe start this conversation with an expansion of the definition of trauma in the way that you see it, because I find it to be much more encompassing and inclusive. Yeah, absolutely. So first, let me extend my thank you and gratitude for you sharing along my work, um, for reposting it. I really do truly appreciate that. And I'm smiling. I was smiling when you said that because for me, the fact that it is not only just being passed, okay, my work is getting on other, you know, in front of other people's eyes. What I'm more interested in is then the conversations. When I hear you say, oh, I'm sending this to, to friends, to loved ones, what I hear is, wow, maybe there's some new language now that can be used in these friend circles and these groups to gain understanding and awareness. So that to me is, is everything. That's a really big um, motivation really for me going online because diving into the topic of trauma, I think, you know, two things happen either the way things historically have been defined. So in the field, and I'll talk a little bit about big T versus my more expanded definition, some things are operationalized or defined in the field. And in my opinion, they're not as inclusive given my own practice with other clients and patterns I've seen in myself. And I'll go into those in a second. So either we're not as inclusive in these definitions that we're trying to operate or fit ourselves into the, the boxes of, and another thing I've found historically in the field, at least of mental wellness, is the way things are talked about, it's kind of like out there, esoteric. You know, like I don't really understand how the concept that maybe I'm learning about, so say I talk about consciousness or I talk about ego, right? Maybe we've heard of these concepts before, but what I started to realize historically, they weren't defined in, a, in an applicable way. Okay, well, maybe I might have met this concept of consciousness, but what does that really mean? How does that really translate? So again, whether or not the definitions are as inclusive as they need to be, or whether or not these, these wordages, these concepts are being defined in a helpful way, hearing that the way I'm presenting this material, that is my motivation, is to make these concepts more known to give humans this understanding so that we can be able to utilize some of this work to change. So what do I mean when I say trauma? In the field, those of you listening might have heard of the concept of big T trauma. So like you were saying, it really encapsulates instances of abuse, neglect. This was developed, I want to say it was in the 90s, was when the first time we began to study you know, what trauma is and define it as what it is. And that was through something that is called the ACEs scale. So listeners might've heard of this adverse childhood experiences scale. And that's where we really began to conceptualize, okay, what constitutes trauma and what doesn't. And that is the moniker now that is kind of uh, universally known as trauma is those big T's, those instances of abuse or neglect. What I came to find, so I knew that, I learned about that. At that time in history, we learned that these bad things that happen in childhood carry effects into our present day, you know, more often than not adult life, we're repeating the pattern. So great. I found myself, um, you know, 
what, what started to happen for me is when I looked at that scale, let me back up. I don't score high on the, on the ACEs scale. I want to say maybe I get a one, the higher the score, just to make sure we're all on the same page, the higher the score, the more quote unquote traumas, big T's you've experienced, you know, resulting in the more negative consequences, psychological, emotional, even physical um, diagnosis. So great. Here I am. I'm not checking many more boxes right. to really explain why at this point I was accumulating many client hours. I had clients for years now at a time. And what I was seeing in even the clients who did check those boxes of the big key traumas, I was seeing similar patterns in the way they coped, in the relationship troubles they were having, in the symptoms, right? In their experiences and in my own and in other people's in my friend circles who I also knew enough about their lives that they weren't checking the big T boxes either. So I got really, personally, I was confused. I was shameful. I thought something must be wrong with me because nothing quote unquote big happened to explain. I mean, Jesus, Stephanie, I'm a psychologist. I should know how to navigate my emotions. I should know how to navigate my relationships, right? Isn't this what I was taught? And my overwhelming answer now up into my thirties, when I started to kind of have these awarenesses was no, was I am struggling just like people you know, who are carrying these bigger T diagnoses. So the short of it is I came to realize that there are a lot of, a lot of other traumas or an expanded definition. I highlight them calling them what I kind of moniker as a spiritual trauma, all of things that happen to the soul, the uniqueness that is us, not being seen, not being heard in childhood, not having the space to just uniquely be us, having to kind of confine ourselves into certain ways of being, into certain qualities, certain, the list goes on. And what I came to find out, Stephanie, is that those experiences, just like the big T's, carry effects. We become, we carry that patterning into our adulthood. Um, and for me, it relieved a little bit. The reason why I talk about this and I'm professing it, and I, I believe it's resonating with a large population of the collective, a lot of us are falling into this other category of trauma. It relieved a lot of the shame. You know, I went from feeling broken, what's wrong with me, to having some better understanding of why I might be stuck in the ways that I too was stuck. Right. And I think what's useful about that is, you know, when you think about a big T trauma, you think about, you know, uh, physical abuse, for example, there is there are wounds that you can see. There are, you know, there there is something that can help direct maybe I go need to speak to, you know, a psychologist or I need help. And when there are things, as you were saying, where a parent uh, denied your reality or was living vicariously through you or all these things that you talk about online, these can be much more invisible, right? And so if you don't know how to, if you don't know that the wound is there, it becomes very difficult for you then to say, okay, so this is the template or this is the path that I need to take in order to begin my healing journey because it is so, uh, it, it's almost, uh, it, it's what, when we talk about, for example, you have a broken arm, it's like, okay, I know I got to get the bone fixed and then we got to set it. And then that's the, that's the template of action. But if there's, something going on internally where we feel stuck or we feel lost or we feel hopeless, but we don't know why there hasn't been this egregious uh, abuse. Uh, it can be much more, uh, it can be much more um, confusing to be, to navigate. So this is why I, you know, this is one of the big reasons why I wanted you on the show, because I also have, when I, when I 
work, I, I work primarily with women and we work on body composition and metabolic health. And, but the one thing that always comes up, you know, when we think about self-sabotaging behaviors is why do I do this? I don't understand why I do this. And it's, it's, it necessitates a deeper uncovering of some of the messages that they were given in childhood about, you know, the color of their skin or their physical appearance or their worth or, you know, all, all these different things. So I love, 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 love that you, um, that you've expanded that definition and that you allow for people not to just simply fit in a box. Yeah. And, and, and actually I love that you're, you're kind of saying the awareness, what I, that same of, in otherwise known as what the word I use consciousness, yeah. because without that, some of these patterns and we are very patterned. I mean, we are patterned as humans from our just daily behavioral habits, right. To the way we think we tell ourselves very similar, repetitive stories about ourselves, our place in the world, our relationships, our past, our future. Again, the list goes on. We also become very patterned in the emotions that we experience because our physiological experience of emotions in the body is connected to those thoughts. So they kind of hang together. So why do I highlight consciousness or awareness? Same thing, essentially. Because upwards of 95% of our day, most of us are allowing that subconscious, that out of awareness part of our brain to run those patterns to, or the computer analogy that we all love to maybe hate it by this point, but to run those programs. So right. we become habitual beings in adulthood. And a lot of times where this plays out and what I call the patterning in relationships where this plays out is trauma bond. A lot of times based on those early wounds, we develop very patterned ways of relating to others or being in a relationship. And then unfortunately, again, in the same way that most of the modeling impacts us young, we just repeat that. So you tend to look across many relationships and we tend to find, most of us at least, that we're playing the same role, we're having the same thoughts and therefore the same experiences. So why is awareness so important? Most of the complaints that I myself have had and that many other humans have, because we are interpersonal creatures, we are wired, we need other humans, we need relationships in our life for many different reasons, we replicate those patterns most frequently in our relationships. And that's where a lot of us carry that, why aren't I knowing better? Why am I still picking the same friendships that don't leave me fulfilled or that maybe take advantage of me? Why am I still picking the same partners? And then some of us have the gift of hearing those whys from loved ones around us, you know, right. like, come on, Nicole, why do you keep picking these people? Right. And so, yeah, talk about shame. And I mean, because we're interpersonal beings, the, the quality of our, or the felt perceived quality of our relationships is really impactful for us. It does mean a lot. We aren't, we are not meant to be, you know, humans on islands and separate from, we are actually geared. So again, when our relationships are impacted, which they are, for most of us having these expanded definitions of trauma, we aren't having those satisfying relationships. And that's where we tend to see that kind of groundhog's day cycle. And then, like I said, a lot of us compound that with either self-shame or, you know, very well-intentioned other shame when people are kind of like, yo, girl, like stop now, you know, and we can't because there's a familiarity there, even if it's not logically serving us. Yeah. Let, let's, let's, start to peel apart some of the consequences of experiencing trauma in, in childhood. One of the things that I uh, just know from my training, and I'd love for you to expand on this, is 
up until about the age of seven, just our neurodevelopmental, like our frontal lobe is not really online until fully online and technically until 25, but like up until the age of seven, we're largely working from the first person singular, right? It's like, I, I am an, this is an ego, like everything around me is for me because of me, you know, it's very, um, uh, it's narcissistic, but it's not, it's not, it's not that the child is like, you know, a sociopath, but it's, they just don't have the capacity to, I always liken it to like watching a play in the theater versus being an actor in the play, right? Like the actor in the play has their lines and like everything is happening to, you know, her or him. And then the, the part, you know, the person in the audience is like, Oh, I can see all the things I can see all the nuances. I can see all the, so when, when something, you know, big happens, um, and using your, uh, definition of trauma, like, let's say the first time you are learning to ride a bike and you fall off, you scrape your knee, that might actually be the worst thing in the world for you at that time because you have no other experience to compare it to. You're scared. Uh, you're, you're hurt. You don't know when the pain is ever going to, is this always, you know, yeah. is my knee always going to hurt this way? Yeah. And if someone, if someone's saying, okay, like stop crying, you're, you're good. Like, just get up, we'll put a band, like, just stop it. Um, there's this, um, uh, Gabor Mate talks about this dissociation. It's not the, it's not the uh, event, but it is the, the dissonance between the internal and the external. Like you separate from, you split from yourself in a way. Um, I would love for you to expand on some of the consequences in terms of how we show up. So when there is an internal feeling like, oh my God, my knee hurts. I fell off my bike. Mom told me like, just like, wrap it up, stop crying. <laughs> there's like this difference, right? And I'm using a simple example, um, yeah. but there's this dissonance between how I feel internally and the external feedback that I'm getting, the dissonance between those two. Then I begin to not trust myself because if I feel this way and my mom is telling me that I'm wrong or my dad or whoever is telling me that I'm wrong, then I must not be able to read the room properly. I must not be able to like... Can you expand a little bit on how that may show up for us as adults? So yeah, know, we are not trusting of ourselves. Like what, what are, what are some of the ways that we might show up as adults from that? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, that is so often the origin, the originations of these traumas, you know, a lot of us aren't going to think back and, and think of, you know, that, because even as adults, when you look back at that, you know, that knee that hurt that, you know, you're now looking back from a more mature mind point. And you might even be minimizing that experience that what, what it was for you yep. in that childhood. And so I say that to say, we all accumulate a lot of these micro moments of that, you know, disconnection, like you're saying, that discrepancy between, and the reality of it is, as far as I say it, when we're in childhood, Stephanie, as far as I believe it, we are as close, this authentic self that we're all seeking to reconnect to that I do believe is, is part of the journey. I call it also the soul, the thing that makes me uniquely me and you uniquely you, right? I believe we all have that in human form, right? It comes here and now in this body that we're living. Anyway, I believe in childhood, we are all so connected to that essence. We are very intuitive. We are reading rooms quite accurately. I mean, for obviously the bandwidth of development that we have. And this is where egocentricism comes in. So to explain what happens really quickly, and then this will illustrate, I think, the adult transfer of what this looks like. Yeah. In childhood, we as humans are one of probably, I think, the only animal 
that is born in a state of dependency on others. We cannot feed ourselves. We quite literally, our physical needs need to be cared for by another human, whoever that caregiver might be. I believe we have three major, very loose, very general categories of needs. We have the needs of our physical body, right? The body that we're co-experiencing this life with. We have emotional needs, right? We have this whole emotional world that constitutes humans that actually do track on to physiological changes in that body. Mm-hmm. And then we have those, the needs of our soul, right? The need to be, like I said, seen, to be heard, to be able to have the space wherever I am in my home and in my relationships when I age to just be me, right? Just kind of unassumably me. So back to the state of dependency and how that plays in. Because we need someone to help us get our needs met, we, in a sense, defer to those someone. That someone, that caretaker, that mom, that dad, that whomever, the sister, the aunt, whoever was caring for us, becomes the, the kind of nexus around where all of our needs are getting met, our physical, our, right? they become our attachment object. Mm-hmm. So they're modeling. And in that first seven years, not only do we not have the capability of our frontal lobe and we're you know our prefrontal cortex and we're egocentric right we are we are not able we, we don't have the cognition like they're saying to view separate vantage points we are also in sponge-like mode our brain waves are in what is called a theta state so we are actually absorbing i kind of say it we're learning to be human we are taking in the wide-eyed look of babies they are actually taking in the world around them to learn and again those earliest relationships become our model because i need you so then what starts to happen when we have a caregiver who possibly this is where this is where this gets transmitted intergenerationally, a caregiver who maybe wasn't modeled how to care for their physical body, their emotional body, their individual essence or soul, right? They might not know how they might not even not know that they're not imparting right those tools onto you. And because we need those relationships we do defer to that caregiver. So back to that example of riding the bike, right? Mom knows or dad, whomever that is in that example, knows better and we need them. So we need to keep this bond intact so that I can continue to get my needs met. So my reality in that moment doesn't matter as much as mom's. So I become, and I'm so adaptive, I learn very quickly how to continue to to keep this relationship between me and mom or me and caregiver, whomever, as intact as possible. And what most of us then pick up are those adaptations, those compromises that we make to the self, those compromises and maybe how we learn to care for the self, maybe not as fully or as adequately or as personally as my body needs. We might learn how to compromise our emotional experiences. If you're like me, the only emotion in my family that was present and expressed was some version of stress, some level of stress, sadness, anger, unless there was an explosion because stress got too, too much to take, right? There was no real modeling of other emotions, right? So for me, my, I became, and this was said to me quite often growing up, nothing ever bothers Nicole. I became so dissociated. Was it true that nothing ever bothered me? No. If you were to hear me speak and when, you know, I'm I'm in the middle of writing a book and a, a big part of the book is my own journey, right? And in that journey, I share with you a lot of what was going on behind the scenes. And it was the farthest thing from nothing bothering Nicole, right? But that's an example that disconnects. So some of us are, right, kind of uh, sanctioning off emotional experiences 
in favor of keeping that relationship intact because I learned I couldn't bring anger to my mom. My mom didn't know how to cope with sadness. So I stopped showing mom that, right? right? Same thing with our spiritual essence, right? So we begin and then we repeat those patterns that we, we needed to adapt into in childhood and we no longer do in adulthood. And like you were beautifully illustrating. Now we have more mature brain faculties. We can see different perspectives and it becomes really hard um, to employ that because we become stuck in that layer of understanding those stories. And like you were saying about that egocentricism, all roads do lead back to us. So when those wounds happen in childhood, it does, the way we understand them is because, right, dad comes home and yells it's because I'm a bad girl, right? Just using myself as an example, not because dad had a stressful day at work. I can't even view, right? I don't like you're saying on that stage, I can't see dad's work play to understand that a million things that happened to dad between him. Not that it's right that the anger came out on me as a child. I might still be hurt by it though. I made it myself. And then we tend to, so now I become unworthy. I become unlovable. And then again, that's that story I repeat into adulthood. So we carry the wounding and the adaptation, the way we coped with that wound. And that's one of those things that we then continue to repeat. And we become shapeshifters in a way, right? We become mm-hmm. the people that we think mom would best love or dad would best love. So yes. if mom can't handle yes. uh, you know, any emotional complexity like sadness or, you know, then you learn to, like you were saying, just like you, it, you on the exterior, you may look like, oh, nothing bothers Nicole. Or, you know, I have a very similar, uh, I, I know a little bit about your story. It's very similar to mine. I remember there was like a distinct decision that I made when I was eight. Like I remember saying to myself, I cannot trust my mother or my father. Like I'm, this is like, I'm on this journey. Like I don't have, like, I can't trust these people. So you begin to, like I was saying, shape shift. And there's this like imprint in the nervous system that begins to uh, start to become activated. And I wanted to, as we grow up that, you know, we've, I think a lot of us and all the listeners listening may have heard of, you know, the inner child or the wounded inner child, where we have, you know, this activation of, our nervous system. And I know it's been discussed as, you know, there's like a small little girl inside you or a small little boy inside you. And I, I, I identify with that as well. When I think about it from a, uh, and when I try to, you know, I, I think, where does my baby Steffi, like that's my inner child's name. It's like, where is baby Steffi? Baby Steffi lives in my nervous system. So I know that when I feel scared, there's like a certain, and my partner will say this to me too. Like my eyes start moving differently. Like they start darting mm-hmm. and like looking down and up versus maintaining like a, a continuous eye contact. He, he'll also say things like your voice changes and like you look, yes. like you sort of flex yes. a little more, like you become like this little girl. What I wanted to ask you was, how, how does the inner, how, if we have this inner child and we don't have awareness of her or him or it, how does that show up in our adult relationships? If we are, if we don't have the awareness that, uh, that it, that it is residing within us. Yeah. I love that you brought up nervous system because a lot of, a lot of our trauma does revolve around our nervous system dysregulation yes. that again, begins in childhood. Mm -hmm. So in that state of dependency to feel safe and secure, right? We need to have our needs consistently met, our physical, our emotional, and our spiritual needs consistently met within a predictable, obviously there's one-offs, but largely predictably met, right? And in absence of that, we feel unsafe. 
And when we feel unsafe, so when your eight-year-old self looked around at the people that unfortunately were responsible for your care and you realized you could not trust them, my heart went out a little, Steffi, when you shared that. So thank you. Because that child in you in that moment felt largely unsafe. Yeah. And when we feel unsafe, so most things come down to, and this is why I'm always, and why I believe the field itself of mental wellness needs to talk, go into a holistic direction, meaning acknowledging the connection between my mind, my body, and I believe my soul, right? Because, and I talk about the body, I say that to say, I talk about the body, I talk about how it's physiologically structured and evolutionarily geared, because that's a, a, that's a large reason why so many of us are stuck. Because what I call it is we're stuck in trauma body. We're stuck in a nervous system reaction, a dysregulation that happened because our nervous system becomes dysregulated when we feel unsafe. That's what it's geared to. Our nervous system, quite simply, that fight or flight response that many listeners probably are you know, familiar with or have heard, and maybe even know what your fight or flight response is, right? That's geared to keep us safe from threat. Obviously, the caveat here is it's no longer the threat of the animal that's going to kill us. Threats now are the cities that we're living in, are the environments in our home, are too, for me, the overwhelming stress in my household. As a child, that was overwhelming for me because I didn't have mom who was connected enough to say, oh, Nicole, you're, you're stressed right now. Okay, let me hold space. Let me co-regulate. Let me take you from an over, you know, a fight or flight response. That's what a, a, we're in that state of dependency in our nervous system. That's what co-regulation is. When an infant cries, its nervous system is activated. It's distressed. It has a need, right? And an attuned caregiver, hypothetically, comes in with that balance. That the, so the opposing, if you will, nervous system is called the parasympathetic or the rest and digest. It's what allows us to have that balance. We feel balanced. We can sleep, right? So hypothetically, the parent comes in and as regulated of a calm nervous system as possible, picks up the distressed infant, like shushes them. And then we both return to that parasympathetic state. The issue happens when we don't have that tuned caregiver or when we don't have the caregiver who can regulate their own nervous system. So for instance, me. So having a mom that was not attuned, the stress that was happening in the house, that might not even been related to me. Often it wasn't. In my childhood, a lot of the stress was what was going on with my mom, who was chronically ill, my sister, who was 15 years older than me and chronically like, not even connected to me, but I was feeling it because we're attuned and no one helped me regulate because no one was regulated themselves. Right. So that nervous system dysregulation and over. So I share that piece about co-regulation because in infancy, we all need that. So when you think back to your our caregivers, a lot of us maybe can identify having had caregivers who didn't have that regulation themselves. So then of course, by extension, we weren't given that tool. So a lot of us do fall into that nervous system dysregulation from an early time. So why am I talking about this? Our nervous system pretty much runs the ship of this body. We have something called neuroception. It's our sixth sense. It's kind of the unknowable thing that is why our, you know, our, our, our hair goes up when we're in that dark alley and maybe we shouldn't, right? We have, we have a safety kind of system that's always operating outside of our awareness, scanning for what? You guessed it, threats. So the issue is if I can't regulate from threats and I'm in that dysregulated nervous system, we overgeneralize. Everything mm -hmm. becomes threatening. And then we become further and further locked 
in that one way of being, maybe in that one way of coping, which for me, the reason why I appeared that nothing bothered me is because I, I'm one of the uh, nervous system responses is something that's called dissociation or numb. I shut down. It's where my physical body is there and it might even be animated and speaking to you right now, but emotionally, psychologically, I would call it my spaceship. I'm on my spaceship. I'm somewhere else. Mm-hmm. All right. So again, we, we, we get locked in that nervous system dysregulation. And then however it is that we've come to cope with that. For some of us, it's using numbing agents. It's substance use. It's, for some of us, it's high risk behavior, trying to, we're stuck in maybe that parasympathetic state, which looks like low energy, no interest. So we need to stimulate, right? Overstimulate us by risk-taking behaviors. Anyway, so it really does evolve around the nervous system and that state of dysregulation um, that we then repeat and we're locked in. So I talk about the nervous system because the pathway out needs to include rebalancing our nervous system or getting us back into that more flexible state, right? Where I can differentiate accurate, real threats from everything else that I'm perceiving as threat and where I can now shift between those nervous systems. I can put on the brakes and rest and allow my body to calm when nothing's quote unquote happening or nothing's threatening. And I can still maintain that activation when I need it. I love that. I, uh, my spaceship, uh, the way I uh, used to describe it is I would just be literally like from the throat down was like, I would cut off like my body. I always say this like half jokingly, but it's actually, my body was just a vehicle to bring my brain around to where it wanted to go. Because anytime I would be like, let me just kind of check in and see what's going on. It just felt like anytime I sank into my body, that it was just this ocean, like it was just this wave after wave after wave of completely overwhelming emotions. And I felt like if I stayed in there, too, like I felt like my body wasn't safe. Yes. So I really relied on, you know, my cortex. So that's, you know, the over, like the archetype of like the overachiever, right? I'm like, I don't need, like my body's just going to like bring me to university and then I'm going to punch out A pluses and I'm going to get into school and I'm going to open up a practice and I'm going to help other people because I don't need to help myself. Like I'm smart. I know all this. Like it's, it's funny. I had this, I was having this conversation with um, uh, Dr. Kelly Brogan. She was on the show a couple months ago. And I used to be the person to be like, you know what? You know what you need? You need to meditate. You need to meditate. <laughs> and you need to meditate. Like I was, I was so easy to dole out the suggestions for other people and not do the things that I needed to do to sink into my body. So um, yeah. And then it becomes a vicious cycle because I can, I I have lived the same one, right? When I try, I discovered um, the practice of mindfulness specifically when I want to say I was 22 years old. It was, I met it through a quote that took me down this rabbit hole. I never heard of it. I intuitively knew it was going to be something that was helpful to me. And the second I went to sit and try to meditate as we kind of traditionally think of like mindfulness. I was so similarly overwhelmed, disconnected. And so I didn't. So I say it becomes a vicious cycle because for a lot of us, we don't feel safe in our bodies. We did maybe, um, we, we have had body reactions that have made us feel maybe shameful or maybe, you know, like we do not, it's not comfortable there. Um, from, from the surface level, it's just unfamiliar. We're not used to being in our body, which for mm-hmm. all of us humans elicits some because of evolutionary value, that which is unknown is unsafe. So the unfamiliar becomes avoidable. We want to avoid that at all costs. So 
from the surface, if you're listening and you're not someone who's used to being quote unquote in your body, um, in and of itself, just trying to reconnect is unfamiliar, uncomfortable, therefore. And then a lot of us, like I said, have had our bodies, you know, respond or react in ways that just aren't comfortable. And we house all of those emotions. So we avoid it. We go to sit, we we know we want to do the work to reconnect and it's uncomfortable. So we avoid, we avoid. And before we know it, we're living our whole life from our head, from our minds. Right. So let's, let's talk about how we can begin to, you know, traverse the bridge between understanding that we have a wound, that we have, you know, the mother wound, the fa- all these things that you talk about on your Instagram feed, which are so, so helpful. So any, I will put the link for your uh, Instagram handle uh, in the show notes. But let's start talking about how we can bring more consciousness to the, uh, the everyday. And your, your community is called Self Healers, which I love. Um, maybe you can, what are, what are some of the, if someone's listening, like, yeah, you know what? I had a mother who was checked out or I had a father who was emotionally checked out or whatever it is. How can we begin to teach ourselves that our bodies are safe and that we can become the parents that we never had or, um, to begin to regulate that dysregulated nervous system? What are some of the first things that you would recommend to someone to begin to practice every day. You mentioned uh, mindfulness and meditation. Is there, is that where we would start or is there something else? Yeah. So consciousness, Stephanie is, is the foundation around which change occurs, right? Cause we can have, be self-aware. We can get, have self-knowledge. Like you're saying, maybe you are the listener who's hearing us and saying, I do know those wounds. I do know what happened. That's amazing. That, that for many of us is part of the story. Um, interestingly enough, and I just like to share this here now, I don't have memories of my childhood. Part of the dissociated experience is I don't have what is called autobiographical. I can't kind of view, close my eyes and view the movie of even what holidays really looked like. I, I, I talk in terms of, I have a sense, I have a feeling that, you know, but none of it is that visual, I think, way that we typically think of. So a question I get often when, first and foremost, I, for many years, thought that I had something wrong in my brain. I thought that there was obviously structural damage or something wrong in the house. I thought, I, memory. I, thought I had Alzheimer's. I have the same. Uh, oh, like, well, especially I, I definitely had Alzheimer's because I was also convinced. So back about the body too, not only was I disconnected, yeah. I didn't feel like I had much control or choice. Mm-hmm. I believe that whatever genes I was born with, they are what's going to tell me what happens next in my body. So I say that to, when you say Alzheimer's, because one of the things that I was convinced that was carried in my family was Alzheimer's. So of course, I have a brain problem. I have no choice. I'm just going to get it at whatever year, age, ooh, excuse me, that you get Alzheimer's symptoms, right? So I actually um, contacted someone who was studying some version of memory impairment, thinking I was going to be a, a specimen in their study because clearly I have this very unique thing. Anyway, the short of it is when you're not present, when you're dissociated, you don't put the memory in. So that's why I don't have those memories. I was on my spaceship. I don't remember. I wasn't really as present to be able to, so when I speak of this, I share this because I speak of this and then people say, well, how can I heal? You know, if I don't know, if I don't have that self-knowledge or that kind of awareness of what happened, can I heal? Absolutely. I don't have that. I have not regained the memories. I likely, they're not there. Like I said, they were never put somewhere to access them. So will they be regained? Probably not. Right. So maybe for some of us, we feel sad we mourn the loss of those, you know, kind of memories of experiences that might be part of the journey. The question then follows, can I still heal? 
And my response is always the same. I mean, A, I've done it and B, yes, because you're a living pattern. If you just watch yourself now, you can see those things that you're replicating. So why am I talking about this now? I, I'm comparing that and, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that self-knowledge is incredibly important. If you don't have it, it's not the game changer. What is, is consciousness, which means shifting from that autopilot that's running the show for most of us from our, again, daily behaviors, daily thought patterns, and then therefore feeling states that I'm stuck in for me, stress, right? All the nervous system responses, all of the way I've coped, that pattern of disassociation. I have to learn how to shift out of that. And the way I do that is I learn how to fire up, which for a lot of us is the part of our brain that's not been online, the conscious part of our brain. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Even though we're repeating and we think we're thinking all day long, what we're repeating are those subconscious patterns. We're not repeating necessarily new thoughts or a future that's different. We're repeating the same things, which is coming from that subconscious, that outside of our awareness. So what I say to people, what I've had to spend a lot of time in the beginning of my healing journey doing because I was so unconscious living in that dissociated autopilot is to begin to practice consciousness with the first step being notice how unconscious you are to do so we have i'm looking for my cell phone that i happen to be talking on (laughs) we happen to have a device right here set an alarm for random times throughout your day that you'll forget by the time the day happens right maybe and when that alarm goes off see what you're doing right see where your thoughts are see how present you are am i here in the moment right am i here what's happening or am i somewhere else maybe another way you could do this is just observe your habits Notice yourself for about a week or two. What is the first thing you do? What does your day look like? Is it generally the same? Even if you've intended to do otherwise, probably the answer is yes. Okay, so notice how often you're on autopilot. If that alarm goes off and your thoughts are in yesterday or tomorrow or you're somewhere else, you're not conscious, you're probably letting that autopilot, you're probably letting that autopilot run your show in that minute, right? Same thing. If you find yourself very habitual and not breaking those patterns, you're in that autopilot. So then what do we want to do? When that same alarm goes off, begin to practice consciousness. And the pathway for most of us who don't want to sit and meditate or who feel too uncomfortable, you know, to kind of tune, tune into that space in a sitting meditation, when that alarm goes off, use our senses. What can I see in this moment? What can I, so touch, right? My back is against this door right now, right? 
can I smell anything? I actually can. I think my partner's cooking something out there. I'm wondering what it is. And I'm excited to have it when this is over, right? So when we use our senses, we bring ourselves from that unconscious state to now. And why is that so important? Because it's in that conscious state where choice occurs and only in that place. Because we're, we are reactive when we're letting that subconscious. We feel out of control because we're not because those patterns are being determined for us. When I'm conscious in this moment, I might feel the pull and I will feel the pull to that old patterning, whatever it might be. But when I'm conscious is when I have the opportunity to make that new choice, to begin to string together something else I'm going to do in this moment, something else I'm going to think in this moment, something, another new feeling I could allow in in this moment. The more of those choices we string together, the more we create that transformation and change from that autopilot. So I say that to say, I don't stop talking about consciousness. I don't stop practicing consciousness. Even now to this day, my number one intention every day is to be as conscious as possible. Yeah, there are moments where right, I go back into an autopilot or I'm just not paying attention, but I'm spending significantly more time consciously, which is why I've by now been able to string together enough choices to create change. And that's the difference between transformation, transforming, having a new future that's different than our past and repeating. I love that. I love that. Sometimes I, when I find myself unconscious, one of the things I'll do is um, I'll go for a walk as well. And I find that that's really, and it's just like a little thing. I'm actually standing on a treadmill right now. I can't have it running while we're talking because you'll hear it in the audio, but uh, just like walking really gently, either outside or just on this little walking treadmill that I have sometimes is enough for me to say, okay, like, what is the, what is the, it's, it's enough of a pattern interrupt of the ruminating, circulating, repeating thoughts that are going on. And I've, I've often found movement. Like I find exercise, like this morning, for example, I was doing um, a weight workout. I didn't really want to do it, but I went yeah. and did it anyway. And at the end of the workout, so I had, you know, it was a leg day doing a lot of like glute stuff and whatever. And at the end of it, I was like, you know what I need right now? I need to cry because I, I knew like, it's also, we're, we're, I don't know if you're into moon, cycles but today's the new moon uh, i don't know uh, if mm-hmm. funny i was just having a niggle of a headache and i was like what is going on why could i and that's probably why it is the new thank moon. you for letting me know so we are always um i find the new moon i'm particularly sensitive to the shadows right like the things that i'm not that i'm trying to ignore or run away from and i finished my workout today and i was like i'm just gonna go upstairs and i'm gonna have a cry because that's just what I need right now. So the move for me, movement, does that fall into, so becoming conscious, is that a a way to do that? Or is that, is that something separate? No, you've said beautiful things. Yes. Movement for a lot of us to actually move our energy. I mean, that's what you did. You no surprising that you cried after. I mean, that's why oftentimes we cry in yoga, right? We're in our bodies. We're releasing stagnant energy stuck. And sometimes that comes out in the energetic expression of tears. You also said something really important too, which is really helpful to create consciousness, pattern interrupting. Mm. When, we go, when we go off of our, I mean, Jesus, we're all living in a time of a huge pattern interrupt right now for many of us, right? Having quarantine, not, this is why it was very challenging in the beginning. I mean, now I feel like we've established a new normal where we've been here, but in the beginning when life changes, right? For some of us, when we go, when we transition, when we go from school and okay, I, for me, that was very difficult. I knew my school feelings. I knew how to school when school was over. It was like the biggest pattern interrupt. Oh my gosh, I don't have classes. I don't have my, my time scheduled. 
So yeah. Yeah. pattern interrupts, doing something that intentionally doing or unintentionally, because the world has made us doing things that are outside of our ordinary are great ways. The only caveat back to the moving, the walking, the only caveat here, and this is what I say too, because walking movement can be helpful. We just had an argument with our partner, right? And I feel that energetic agitation. And so to prevent an old reaction, maybe I'm going to go take a minute and walk. Mm-hmm. There's a very, there's a different experience that you're going to come back from that walk around if you're on that walk and you're revisiting the argument. If I've walked myself around the block 10 times and I'm spinning the argument and I'm working myself up and maybe I'm coming up with a new argument, I'm stuck still energetically in my argument at home, even though my physical body is moving. That's how powerful the mind is. It can override. I mean, I've done this. It's actually when I was very dissociated, I had some alarming where I would live in New York and there were times I was so lost in thought and maybe in music as well. I would walk onto a New York street with cars. I mean, people beeped at me before and like, so in another world, I put myself physically, that's how powerful the mind is. So the only caveat is, and that's why when you do say yoga practices, the attention, your attention is always directed, go on your body and your breath, feel your leg, right? Because if our attention throughout that yoga practice is in our issues in our problems in that fight, we're going to return from the practice, return from the walk probably in that still activated state emotionally, as opposed to have grounding our attention, say on the feeling of our body moving through physical space, maybe as our energy changes, okay, my heart rate was pounding. Now three laps later, I'm feeling a little bit calmer, right? Focusing our attention in our body can be the difference. Of course, there are some people that walk and can think through problems and come back feeling different. So this is to those ruminators, to I know me, I could create a whole story in my head that could affect my whole entire body and right. how it's feeling. Um, even if my body is doing something that should quote unquote, be making it feel something else, if that makes sense. Yeah. The point of the walk is not to get the, the well-timed retort. Like that's not the point of the walk, right? The point and of the- a lot of us do that. And especially too, if that's our pattern. So that's yeah. why I share that because I know for me for a long time, you know, I was maybe going about the motions of things that I thought would be helpful but I was almost like overriding it or negating it because my mind was is too powerful. It, it actually, that is what was dictating how my body was reacting as opposed to the walk or whatever I was doing. That's great. That's such a nice distinction. I love that. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. What, how do we begin to, so we, we have, we, we are practicing consciousness. We're trying to understand how unconscious and how automated things are through the day. At what point, in, and maybe you can share this in terms of your journey or clients that you've worked with, where do we begin to draw the line and to understand that our thoughts are not us, that, that, that those are the automatic thoughts that are going to go through our minds five, seven, 10, 15,000 times a day? How do we begin to become the observer of the thought rather than uh, uh, the reci- being the recipient of the thought. Like, it's like, you're, you're not good enough. You're whatever. You're not worthy enough, pretty enough, whatever. Where do we begin to awaken to or become conscious? And like I said, I'd love to hear for you how this uh, opened up in your life, where you begin to say, oh, I hear that voice again. Like she's telling me I'm, I'm, I'm not smart enough, or she's telling me I'm not worthy. You know, thank you, but we're still going to do this thing here. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is to realize that you are, we are having, I mean, I don't even know what the number is, innumerable thoughts each and every day, most of us from the time we wake up. So the first, and this might sound like simplistic, realize that you are having those thoughts. And that is, so the fact even that you can be aware of your thoughts really illustrates that you are, that there's something else. What is that awareness? Who is gazing upon those thoughts? So first step is to become aware that we are thinking. And so for many of us, that is most, we are most aware of that when we are in, when we are either in silence, sitting, meditating, or even in bed, right? If I am someone who doesn't bring my phone into the bed, or if I put my phone down before I go to bed, those few minutes of silence before I fall off to sleep, right? Might be where you get the glimpse of this, this thinking that I'm, so, cause Stephanie, I'm always someone I don't, I don't think I'm not about outsourcing. Don't look to me to, to hear what I say and incorporate it as your truth. I am yeah. all, I want to empower humans to see and feel and, and, and develop and create their own realities and truths themselves. Cause so many of us, again, have had our realities determined for us. So don't believe me, go see, go, go experience your own thoughts. I'm here to er, to suggest that you do so under the assumption that if you're like most other humans, they're there all day long. So first we want to tune into the fact that thoughts are happening and then to question, yeah, okay, if I can see these, quote unquote, hear these, whatever the language is that resonates, that is how we can become more connected to that separation. That doesn't mean though that we are the, I call it the light switch where I get to just say, oh, okay, I get this now and I'm different from my thoughts. So whoop, I've now changed my relationship with them. Absolutely not. All the type we, are listening. You can't just, you know, language. <laughs> it's a practice yeah. to do that consistently because it becomes increasingly more difficult. I was looking, I've been looking for every elixir since my family taught me to. We love get, get fixed quick schemes, as I call them in my family. Um, so if anyone was finding a magic elixir or what I call it, my utopian hammock in the sky where I'm just done healing, I will let everyone know. I have yet to find either of those things and I'm desperately searching. So I totally get it. Um, but we want to, yeah, we want to tune in that we are separate for a lot of us. The fact that we have, we can view upon our thoughts, right. That can give us that distinction. Okay. There's something else that makes us who we are. And again, then we want to be able, we want to build on that practice because it becomes infinitely harder. Like I was saying earlier and the world's here, right. That's why for some of us, as uncomfortable as sitting meditation is even if it's when i'm laying before i go to sleep or when i first wake up that's a bit helpful because i'm when i shut my eyes and i close off the world it's me and my thoughts while that might be the most uncomfortable place to be that's for some of us that movie screen where we can see this thinking and, and begin to build in that separation the goal though is and this is why I believe we have to, we have to expand. So even those of us who have a great meditation practice, if I sit and I meditate in the morning, say every morning, if I go back and I leave my meditation room and I go right back into an autopilot that's, you know, has some habits in it that aren't helping me, mm. that's what's going to determine the large, the larger majority of my day. So that's why when I talk about consciousness, I talk about living in consciousness. So that's the same thing extends to living, right? What I self-observationally, that's what I call it, like learning how to self-observe yourself, whether it's observe yourself in life, in your habits, or observe your internal world. We want to cultivate the ability to do that in real time. 
because our thoughts don't shut off now that they're being seen. Um, they, our ego doesn't get any quieter. It's still very much trying to determine our, or dictate our daily life, our stories about ourselves. right? They all get replicated, meaning we live with them. So what we want to do is cultivate that space where I am that awareness and I'm seeing my thoughts in real time. And then over time, creating a choice in what I do differently, because we, we don't get to just shut those off. We have to learn how to expand that conscious practice so that when I'm hearing that I'm you know, unworthy or that you know, my partner not calling me right now means I'm unworthy, I can maybe now give myself an opera, a new choice. I can either hook on that thought and sit there and think about how unworthy I am until I feel or until I strengthen my feeling of being unworthy, or I can begin to practice something new. I might practice a new thought, or I might practice removing my attention from that thought. So it's really in real time um, that that separation, that learning how to be that observer becomes impactful. Because that's the difference between, like I said, oh, I'm aware, I'm so, I know my patterns, I know I do this thing every time my partner does this other thing. That's the difference between just being really self-aware who maybe I thought I was for a long time and in creating change in that moment, right? Because to create change in that moment, anticipate that your partner is going to do that same thing again. And that when that happens, you're going to think the same things and feel the same way and want to be compelled to do that same reaction. That's all going to happen. However, if I practice, I can observe all of that as hard as it is in real time. I've created enough space and other tools. Now I might have the opportunity to the next time my partner does that thing to begin to do something different. And that's the difference between, like I said, that self-awareness, that self-knowledge and utilizing consciousness to do something about it, to create the change, to move forward in a yeah, new way. That's the difference between information and application, right? It's one thing mm -hmm. to know it. It's one thing to, and it, this is like the people that are the type A's. And I say this with love because I am still a recovering type yeah, A. Same. <laughs> you know, you walk around, you're like, I know this. I know, I know, I know, I know. But there's a difference between knowing yeah. and having it embodied, right? So the application yeah. of what you're talking about uh, is so profound. And when it comes to, uh, relationships. I think that this is particularly romantic, really. I mean, of course, in all contexts, but of course, when we think about where our trauma, where those things show up is in these deeply personal uh, romantic relationships. And you said uh, something, it was on your Instagram. Uh, it was something like uh, knowing your partner's trauma response is a love language. So we talk about the love languages like gifts and words of affirmation and, you know, I forget the other ones, but um, what can you expand on that? Because I think that that, when we think about conscious relationships and the ability to make conscious choices in the moment and to be able to activate a new reality and pattern interrupt, I think that this is where it shows up the most. Yeah. I have a prime example and I'll use something that I've been talking about with my partner. Her name is Lolly. Um, recently. So I always, I always joke when I bring her up, um, I think in so many ways, when you talk about picking, you know, a completely opposite <laughs> in terms of our condition patterning, we were very opposite in a lot of ways. And our points of opposition were points of conflict. So what I mean when I say that is, so one of my core wounds in childhood, having a family that I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but part of the family stress response that was very family felt like the whole family was stressed and or waiting to be stressed with pretty much mm -hmm. the two iterations. Um, so 
the the whole stress response was wrapped around this concept in my family of always something. And when that happened, right, everyone was focused on whatever the something was and with the stress and the chaos usually really. And just to clarify, always something could be something very big, like again, a health crisis. It also could be the male being delayed. I mean, so this really, talk about overgeneralizing, like we were talking about earlier, right? This meant everything was the threat. I mean, the male not coming for another hour, you know, objectively, though, that's the sort of thing. So always something. When, we, when they were in that state of overwhelm, like I was describing earlier, right, there was a lot of distraction because when we are in that nervous system state of activation with a threat, all we can pay attention to is that threat. And all we care about is that threat being resolved. And this is why some of us appear a little selfish in those moments. We actually delete other people from our experience because they don't matter. All that matters evolutionarily is that I'm okay, right? So a lot of times we do say mean things. We can't come out, you know, in our reactions, we can be sometimes hurtful to other people because we're not considering the other person. So why does this apply? One of my core wounds is what I have always heard my mind say, I'm not considered. And I would paint that meaning over everything done to me, right? In all of my relationships, I was just waiting for each and every moment where say Lolly in particular wouldn't consider me. And particular times I felt not considered was when I could sense that my partner because it originated in my parents' right. attention was somewhere else, was unavailable to me, especially problematic if I'm in a feeling. So why do I bring this up? Lolly, when she is, she also carries her own traumas from childhood. When she is activated emotionally, she does just that. She gets distracted. She, for a very long time, had severe, quote unquote, I put this in quotes, ADHD, ADD symptoms. She didn't have the hyperactivity. I mean, to the point that school was a goddamn living traumatizing nightmare for her. And the way I understand that is that attention, she couldn't hook the attention on the thing in front of her because home was so overwhelming. She was in fight or flight. School doesn't matter when you your home is volatile, right? So why do I say that? What would happen? is when life was happening around Lolly and I, and I was having feelings as I always was, and if she was activated in any way, she would go into her trauma response of distraction. And that would trigger my mic, especially if something was happening in my world that I would like a partner to be available for. Yeah. She, I perceived her as being unavailable in that moment. Cause you're like, pay attention. I need you to consider. And she's like, Oh, to just- you're, I mean, it got where it, it got, you're a bad partner. You yeah. can't support me. You're, what are you doing? Hello. Cause you know, I, I didn't know this is, I'm sharing with you what I understand is happening now from this vantage point, but in real time for many years in the beginning of our relationship, I would say, and even say to her, you know, really mean things. Like you're not able to support me. What's your problem? Like, I need you right now. Hello, like kicking, screaming, yelling, turning up the volume and still, what did that do? Made her retreat more. So that's what we get locked, right? In both of us now are in a trauma response, activating each other and neither of us are feeling secure. So why do I talk things and put out memes now that knowing each other's trauma and trauma language is, is a love language? Now, after much growing, much evolving, these things still happen. These moments still happen. They just happen, which is why we're talking about them. Now I can, I have a new frame of reference. 
when I feel her pull away or when I see evidence of that, she gets a distracted look in her eyes. I can tell she's like far away looking. That is exactly what my family looked like. So now I have a choice. I can assign that old meaning. Oh, you're not available to me. Just like no one else was. I'm I'm not considered and have that older reaction. I've done a lot of work or I can now stand in that space, see, still experience, maybe disappointment. I wish you were here, but I have a new frame. I have a new meaning I can assign. Oh, you're, and sometimes I'll ask her, I feel like you're a little distant today, Lolly. Are you, are you, are things coming up for you? And she'll say, yeah, I'll say, okay, take the space you need. And now I don't have to, yeah. Are there inopportune times when maybe she's having a feeling in somewhere else and I'd prefer her to be closer emotionally to me? Yes. That's how it is being a relationship though. I don't in that moment expect her to kind of put her need to the back to deal with me. That actually is what I don't want to happen because in my opinion, that ends in resentment over time. So yeah, sometimes it's unfortunate timing when both of us are having feelings that are causing us to have different needs. Though look at all the space I have now. Now I can accept, I can surrender to where she's at And I might be able to equip myself now to meet my need. Okay, well, if she's somewhere else right now, and if I am still having a need, I maybe can take care of meet my own need. Or maybe I have now a friend over here that I can now call. And all of that changed because I was able to have a new filter for the same experience. That's so great. And I think that that really speaks to the effort that is required to be in a relationship. And I think that so often, um, I know like in social media now, there's this all that we talk about cancel culture, but there's almost this cancel culture in relationships, right? It's like, Oh, it's tough. Okay. I'm going to, I'm out. Right. Like it should be easy. It should be just like the movies, like the movies. It's like, they live happily ever after. There's never a fight to be had. And I think when that's the template that you have, when you have the, uh, you know, the Disney princess is kissed by the prince or whatever. And she turns, I don't even know this, like she turns from a frog. I'm sure I'm mixing up all the Disney stories now, but we have the Disney, the Disney template. And then we have like these rom-coms and these romantic things where we are told uh, it should look like this. It should be like this. And when it's tough, which every relationship, every relationship is work. And the right ones actually are I'd argue maybe more work because they are the ones that are going to, you're going to create a safe space, hopefully for healing in there. Um, but it's, it's so important that you're saying this because I think that there's this fantasy that people have where it's like, well, it's, it's been a great run, but I'm not really willing to deal with, you know, your issue, you know, this issue yeah. that you have, I'm going to like, you know, just kind of cut it. Yeah. yeah. And I would do just that. I mean, that is language that would come out up until I became conscious to the parts that I was creating in my relationships. I did blame, oh, I just didn't pick the right part. Uh, you're just not emotionally available enough to me, not realizing that I wasn't emotionally available enough to be, therefore be emotionally available to them in the relationship, right? But back to what you're saying, I was giggling because most most movies are are one movie, so you can speak it's about like it. One, yeah, it's one template, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's another thing I talk about that I think has confused a lot of us around not only what it should be happily ever after, it shouldn't be hard. I think a lot of us believe it shouldn't be what we might call boring, right? Mm-hmm. And when, we're, when we don't have those emotional highs and lows, the honeymoon periods, as we like to call them of relationships, the beginnings are great for most of us. 
because we have oxytocin, we actually are physiological changes happening. We do get highs and lows. I mean, people who study relationships, you know, there's other stages that relationships go into that is more light, just normal stuff, you know, maybe even peace and calm and not for me always something. And why do I bring this up? Because if you're someone like me, you know, living just consistently with emotional activations, whether it's stress or anger, right? It's flat feels boring. The absence of that could be mislabeled as boring. And so when we kind of shift and plateau, and now we're in what might be called a stable even relationship, some of us might be feeling, and I've done this myself, maybe I don't like this person anymore. Maybe I'm over this relationship. Maybe they don't like me. Maybe they're moving on. What's going on here? Why? Where's the fire? Um, and again, I think that's a result of a couple things, you know, like you're saying, Disney romanticization of, I mean, they, the way they present relationships as if it's the honeymoon all the time of it. And it's not true. Right. Um, and also Again, a lot of it is connected to what you and I were beginning at the beginning, those condition patterns. So if you're someone who's used to always something, when that, even if it's not logically, even if you know it's stressing you the hell out and it's not the relationship you want, when your relationship, even for me, logically, that hippie hammock I was talking about, mm-hmm. all I would have said throughout my whole life is peace, man. I just want peace. However, I couldn't tolerate peace. It was unfamiliar. The lack of sympathetic fight or flight activation to me was uncomfortable. So I would do one of two things in my relationships. I would either tick around kind of uh, in my body, like agitation. I would clean, I would expend the type A, right? I would do things. I would go through my checklist. I'd clean the house, right? I'd get my energy out that way. If my partner happened to be home or not, I have a cell phone. I might agitate the relationship. I might remember that thing that you didn't do this morning. And why don't you do And now, you know what I've created? Always something. Now I'm in a new stress response. So that hippie hammock, while I was proclaiming, all I want is peace, man, leave me alone. When I had it, I was so used to chaos that I, I participated and I created it. So I say that to say, for some of us, the absence of always something, the absence of maybe anger, or passion or whatever it is, when that goes away, some of us are feeling that discomfort because that's the pattern we're used to. And then we're saying and we're misattributing and we're thinking or we're assigning the meaning that this must be because, right, this relationship or this partner or it's them or I'm out of here. That's so great. And I, I hope that that, you know, if you were listening to this, you're like, oh, yeah, it is actually, I am maybe addicted to, or maybe there's a, hopefully there's some self-reflection around this idea of being addicted to that chaos or the always something or the needing to get that hit. And we, I had a, I had a conversation. I've had a few conversations with uh, Jennifer Kolari. She's a child. uh, She's a social worker. And she talks about this with kids who will, um, if they can't, if they're having problems self-regulating, they will create drama in order to get a response from the parent. So when the parent blows their top, it's like, I can't believe you're doing this. And can't you just blah, blah, blah. Then they get that hit of adrenaline, which then turns on their frontal lobe. And that is actually the sedating thing. And we will do that as adults as well. We will do that in our, as you're saying, like I might send a little spicy text, like why you know, why didn't you this? What, like, what does this mean? You know, it's because you are also trying, it's, a, it's almost like a way to self-regulate, to get that adrenaline going. You're like, oh yeah, that familiar thing when I was a kid, like all the cortisol and the adrenaline and the, all the stuff that, um, yeah. that, the, that nervous system, that inner child, that nervous pathway that, um, that's imprinted. 
because our mind and our body are connected. And that's why I'm so impassioned about connecting them and adding the soul in into the mental wellness field because my nervous system, because my partner left and I'm having the day to myself, if I'm in that dysregulated fight or flight state, mm-hmm. it doesn't miraculously fall back into that parasympathetic. So I might be laying on that couch, right? Seemingly nothing happening around me, but my nervous system my body is still physiologically in that activated state. So my heart rate might be a little higher. Like cortisol is definitely, I mean, I live with cortisol raging through me, right? So my brain, my mind is picked to connect it. They're communicating, right? Mm-hmm. So now my mind is like, interesting. She's activated. Okay, well, what, what's up? Oh, right. The dish is not being done. That's what really is, right? So now we need to, we seek that coherence. Okay. My, I'm agitated. I must, so now my mind, that's why it's hard to shut off racing thoughts because they're almost being fed by the body. I'm scanning. What is it? What's going, what is that? Threat? Oh, right. That's the threat. Right. And now I'm in coherence again, even though it's not that peaceful coherence. So again, that is why I, I truly deeply believe we have to start integrating the human because it is that two-way communication. And unless we change the signals that our body is sending in that moment, unless I learn how to maybe do breath work or anything that activates my parasympathetic, unless I build that balance in. So now I'm on that couch, right? And my body is sending that message of peace to my mind. So now my mind doesn't have to work as hard to identify the threat that's causing my body's activation because it's not activated anymore. So back when I was discussing the body and the trauma body and why it's so important to build in that physiological balance. Here's that prime example. Cause without it, my mind is picking, my mind is going to continue to register threat in my body. What is threatening? And I'm going to continue to seek. And you know what? I'm going to find it. I'm going to find the threats because I'm going to overgeneralize them and I'm going to be stuck in them. And then I'm never going to let my body get a new message. Is it, is it important at some point to be able to forgive your parents or your pro- whatever your primary caregiver looked like. Is that, is that an important part in healing? Uh, is it important? So the way I, what I believe forgiveness comes from, this is so beautiful, this is all interconnected. The more we become aware of ourselves and our conditioning and our patterns and all of the factors, right, that led up to them, not only just our parents, our parents' parents, the the countries they were born in, some of them war torn, some of them under systematic oppression. I mean, the list goes on, right? So we have when we understand all of it that impacts the human, right? I believe empathy, that's what empathy is, being in that audience, seeing all of those, you know, car occurring factors that are impacting the person. That is when I believe when we become able to see factors and able to empathize empathy is see from another person's lived experience what might be causing their behaviors then we can allow a a new feeling in so whether or not it's forgiveness it could be understanding and i want to qualify that forgiveness doesn't mean the necessity of relationship because part of my journey um part of what i also was healing and still am healing from is in that patterning of always something there was a codependency or lack of boundaries. So that's why it was always something in the family. It wasn't just, oh, mom's having a bad day and we can be over here in a different emotional experience. That's one of the examples of, of codependency. Um, so this idea that like we can't be separate, 
you know, we can't have separate feelings is, is a lot of what I've had to learn to do is to separate, you know, my, myself out, allow me to be in a different feeling space um, than other people and to be okay with it. Within that healing, I made, I went no contact. I had no contact. I mean, it was a long journey of multiple versions of trying boundaries on either side. And I, I think it was almost about two years. So I doesn't mean that I was, you know, angry and not forgiving. Um, I that was part of my own journey. So I just like to qualify that because I do get asked a lot. Okay, well, if I can understand, so maybe I can step back and maybe I'm someone who knows that, you know, my parent abused me in some way, or maybe there was a spiritual trauma and feelings are coming up and I'm hurt. If I understand the question that then follows often is, well, won't I still be opened up to abuse? If this person's the same person and I'm in a relationship with them, you know, aren't I just welcoming, am I explaining away abuse? You're obeying it. It's like, I forgive Violation. you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. And so my response is always the same is that that's why I, I kind of clarify that empathizing, understanding doesn't mean that you have to show up in a relationship with them. And I use myself as an example to the extent that I, I have put up boundaries, hard boundaries, even with some family members of no contact um, because I needed to. Now we're evolving and we're rebuilding with boundaries, a new version of a relationship. Um, so is forgiveness a necessary part of it? I mean, some people will come to forgive because we come to these new awarenesses, which allows us to depersonalize. So back when those wounds were about us, my mom was unavailable to me because I wasn't worthy. Mm-hmm. If I can expand now in my adulthood and my consciousness and say, you know what? It wasn't about me at all. My mom was not equipped. My mom wasn't connected to herself. Therefore, she's not a kind of, not only is she not connected to me, She's not connected to my brother, to my sister, to her husband, to her brothers, to her own, right? The list goes on. So now I can welcome that it's not about me, Um, whether or not that allows me to forgive her. I never felt fully angry. So for me, that's natural. I feel, you know, kind of understanding. So for some of us, that's part of it. It's not necessary. And I don't think that understanding automatically okays what we do next. We still have the choice as an empowered adult. To say, I might get it and I might still need this level of space from you or our relationship might need to look different to keep me safe now. So I can empathize with the factors leading up to what happened, but that doesn't mean that we have to have a relationship. And if we do have a relationship, to paraphrase what you're saying, I can set a boundary around what is and what is not okay for me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Let's, uh, the one thing I wanted to touch on is actually boundaries. So this is just a perfect segue in terms of how we can, um, well, there's a, there's a couple things. One, I think that the word boundary or setting boundaries has become, it's such a thing now into the, you know, we were talking about relationships before and I said, oh, this is like cancel culture. Like, well, it's been great, but you know, how do we know that we are setting a boundary versus running away from our own shit. Like, how do we know that what we're doing is intentional towards our healing or if it is reinforcing an already, an already established pattern uh, uh, or an area of focus that we may need to lean into? Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're answering it and offering that concept of pattern. Right? So what comes to mind when I hear running away is, me essentially dissociating, leaving, you know, being done. Like, oh, I'm over here. I'm out of this now mm-hmm. in protection. So usually, you know, we 
we have to come to know ourselves. We have to develop the ability to observe ourselves. And if in doing that, you are able to acknowledge, and I say are able to, because I'm not going to pretend that me allowing into consciousness all of these aspects of myself that, you know, and my patterning was easy because it wasn't easy. I mean, there was downright, especially in the beginning when, you know, my partner maybe was the gifter of some of this information in the most loving way. Hey, Nicole, you're a little bit agitated when this happens, or I noticed this thing, you know, talk about arguments, talk about, no, I don't believe you. That's not what's happening. Please stop telling me this. So when I say that, you know, knowing ourselves and acknowledging and admitting and being what I say, radically honest, you know, about ourselves is, is, is difficult um, in and of itself. And when we do that, so to differentiate, if you are the person who does tend to have a pattern of running away, you know, of canceling things very quickly, then you might want to question and wonder if that's a continuation of that pattern. What a boundary is, is a limit. It's a limit that separates me and my needs. You guessed it, my physical, emotional, spiritual needs, how I can express myself and feel safe to do so in relationship, that distinction between me and you. Acknowledging that you, Stephanie, have different physical, emotional, spiritual needs. You express yourself differently, right? So there's a separation between us in a sense. Opposing that with the most extreme examples of codependency, of that it's a meshment of the lack of boundaries, right? Whereas either we're relying on people still to meet our physical needs, whether or not we're the person who emotionally, we only feel okay if all of our relationships or our loved ones are okay. I was that person, Mm. right? When everything was okay, or so I thought in my relationships, I was not stressed, waiting for the next time things weren't okay. Um, So the lack of boundaries. And again, all of this comes from what are we modeled in childhood? And what we're modeled in childhood really is going to distinguish what we then pattern what we've been so a lot of us this is new i never heard of a boundary i didn't know what that was i wasn't modeled any boundaries i came to realize in childhood so learning about this concept was new enacting boundaries was even harder hard because as we start to separate ourselves yeah. right a, cu- a couple things are happening yeah first of all if that if if we've carried this relationship you know from our past to say i have this friend for 10 years and now i've decided i need a boundary i can't be available all night long when they say call me with their boyfriend problems so i have to right that first that when we first start to be a little less available at minimum we're violating an expectation because the the history of the relationship so when you think about our parents i mean these are expectations of lifetimes you know like this is as we've had these dynamics for as long as I can remember. So if I'm someone who's creating a new boundary in my relationship with my parent, at minimum, the person's going to be a little bit surprised on the other end. Like, oh, huh, you've always used to be here. If the person on the other end of that, right, does feel like you to be a little less available to them, if that's the kind of boundary you're putting up, which usually it is, a little bit of space between me and you. Mm-hmm. If that human has the ha- happens to have their own abandonment wound, which most of us do, we don't feel fully connected, cared for, and safe again, physically, emotionally, spiritual, and childhood, sometimes that can get activated, right? Oh, you're, you're not available to me now. You're leaving me. It must be about me right now. We have all of that thinking, and that could you know, result in a reaction from the other person. So 
understanding that we need limits is part of it. Um, defining those limits. So looking in the relationships, you know, what would feel better, you know, how available can I be to this person? You know, do you have someone who's always taking your things and you want your like kind of possessions to be a little more yours? Maybe someone's always draining your emotional resources. It is that friend who's calling you all night long. Maybe you have a friend who can't tolerate that you have different beliefs. So every time you're with them, they're overriding what yours are, right? So you want to define the boundary and then you want to start to show up differently. Because that's the caveat here. With, that's the important part with boundaries yeah. is there changes that we're going to empower ourselves to make. This is different than an ultimatum where I say, Stephanie, if you do this thing again, your punishment is you're out of my life. That's different than, okay. If and when this thing happens again, whatever it might be, Stephanie, you call me in the middle of the night, I am going to empower myself and I'm going to let you know that my phone is going to now be off. So I'm empowering myself. I'm making the choice. Obviously, if I execute keeping my phone off, right? Now, that's a behavior that I did. The byproduct might over time be you call me less at night because now you're not getting that need met. But that's different then, right? And what a lot of us be, try to do at first, and I know I did too, was do that. You change. You just, yeah. just stop calling me at night. And I don't have to worry about picking up or not picking up. Ooh, so just to clarify, a boundary is what we're going to do differently. And then, like I said, once we go to enact them, it's difficult. It's hard. Um, sometimes it's the kickback that we, like I said, get from the other. For me, the more difficult was, I call them my feel bads, was in my mind, was the guilt was what I imagined they were thinking about me was what, you know, all of the things I was, and I still do that because now I'm back in connection with my parents, my family. Now I'm trying to have a boundary relationship that works for all of us. So there are so many moments where I'm taking the space that I need and they're letting me have it. And everything seemingly objectively is fine until you tune into here. What are they thinking? Why haven't they called me? What's going on? Are they mad? Maybe I should call them tomorrow. I mean, I might as, you know, it's like I am doing so. Again, a lot of us, it's the resistance inside of how we feel because we're used to showing up in that way. And there's a reason, typically, because again, we had to. That's how we maintained connection. So a very common fear is if I don't show up in this way anymore, I might not have this person. I might lose it. And while that's true, what's also possible is you get to clear out space to show up more authentically and actually you get to save that relationship. Yeah. This has been so useful. And you know, the things that we're talking about today is they are not easy. Like sometimes I think, man, if I just took the blue pill, like, you know, like the red yeah. pill is so much harder, but at the end, you know, such is the paradox in life, right? Anything worth having is really, you know, there's a lot of work and attention uh, that is required. And I just, I want to just close our conversation by saying that you are doing such important work. I mean, you've shown up today that I know that this episode is going to help so many people. And, you know, on behalf of myself, anyone that's listening, all the millions of followers who all love you, uh, I hope you can receive all the love um, that we all have for you, for your courage, your honesty, your transparency, your, you know, honest, all the things that you, your openness. Um, it's been so wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so, so very much. Well, thank you for all those kind words and all the support. And I, I express my sincere gratitude right back to you, Stephanie. It's, you carving out space, you having interest in talking to me that is everything because 
there was a time before I went online when I started to come to these awarenesses that I felt very lonely, very disconnected. Like I was speaking and living in an alternate universe and those around me. And quite honestly, one of the major motivators for me going online was to try to attempt desperately or so I thought to find a community of people who got it. And especially, you know, other people in the practitioner who wear the practitioner hats. Um, Because I know a lot of us are, are, we're trained in older models that are becoming increasingly outdated. So the gift of going online, I mean, completely exceeds my expectations every day. I would never imagine the community to be as prolific as it is of humans and also of practitioners like yourself. So I am indebted and eternally grateful to know that there's yous out here, that there's so many of us now that, you know, are empowering ourselves to new choices. So thank you. When is, when is the book coming out? So the book actually is coming out March 9th is the release date, though I may or may not have a special announcement coming very soon. Very exciting. Okay, well, we'll have to have you back on around the time of your book launch. I'd love to love to talk about that then too. Well, that would be awesome. I would love to talk about it. So the book is really cool because it's it's different than the Instagram. It's finally a place where I kind of like map out all that is self-healing in one cohesive place. Because Instagram has been a gift. I mean, the fact that I'm able to get these tools out there and this information out there, I mean, internationally at this point. Um, but I think overwhelmingly the, I, the, the want for a whole cohesive start to finish is, is been there all along. So I am so excited to have this now exist and to be out in the world. It's going to give us, I think, a different feel than those little squares. So I love those little squares. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, they got me the opportunity to write a book, you know? Yeah, man. Yeah, man. And they are useful little squares. So, you know, best of, best of luck to you with writing the book. I, uh, I know what it's like to birth a book baby. It's hard, yeah. hard work. So uh, wishing you the best of luck in editing. And I can't wait to, uh, to talk to you again. Thank you so much. All right, Betty. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation. As I said in the beginning, I, I, float, I have my podcast studio in my home. I floated up the stairs after this conversation because it was really, in my opinion, one of the more important uh, conversations that we've had because mental health and resiliency is really a big current focus of mine because of you know 2020, the way that it's been panning out and some of the long-term implications that I think uh, we are going to see in uh, our psychological and our mental health. So I hope that you found this good and useful, and I hope that you will share and re-listen as many times as you need. And I wanted to invite you into our Facebook group. We are currently taking the last bit of questions before we record uh, where there's two actually there's two episodes that are coming up. One is our AMA number eight, which we always field our questions from the Facebook group. We're called the Better Community on Facebook. It's free, um, and would love to have your questions there. And the other special thing that's coming up is our year anniversary. Unbelievably, in about a month is going to be our year anniversary doing this podcast. So we are going to be taking our highlights and taking some of the best moments from the podcast and talking about them and doing a year in review and would love to know from you what your high moments were. What were your peaks? What were the big aha moments that you had? And we're going to have a post in the Facebook group where you can share that. So 
Uh, like I always say, I always leave little Easter eggs here because if you've gotten this far in the podcast, Betty, then you are you are definitely a Betty if you are still listening. So absolutely love and appreciate you and would love to see you in our Facebook community. So like I said, better community on Facebook. It's free. You can interact with other Bettys that are there and looking forward to seeing you there real soon. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Asima, and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.